0: Everybody and welcome back to another episode of Dia. Today. I am Dr. Bill Friesen, and I am joined here, as always, by my colleague, Dr. Scott Masson. And today we are back at Paradise Lost, looking at a book of uh, the text, which oftentimes gets passed over when it comes to close readings, discussions in classrooms, things like this, or even indeed research and publication, which is Book Three. Book Three is so loaded with interesting theological positions, problems, insights, um, that to skip it is to uh, essentially endure a great loss, as it were, from the text here. And I understand that this is also one of your favorite books, Dr. Masson, to discuss, because it's just so incredibly rich. Can you say a little bit about, particularly at the beginning here, as we look at uh, how Milton starts off book three?
1: Yeah, I'll say a few things, and then I'm hoping to read uh Fair bit of it as well. Um, Milton began, if you recall, back to the first episode uh, on this when we talked about book one, um, in his invocation right at the outset, he said that he was going to justify the ways of God to men. That was how he concluded the invocation. And most anthologies, which is the way most people access Milton these days, if they read Milton at all, they read it in an anthology. the anthologies leave out wholly book three of Paradise Lost. Uh, They tend to cut great chunks of it for the purposes of presumably economy, I I don't know. But if Milton announces that justifying the ways of God to men is his theme, it seems to me whatever one thinks of that, if you're going to present works in an anthology, that you have to allow God to speak and explain why what's happening is happening. And that's what we get in book three and we don't get it anywhere else, uh, nearly as clearly at any rate. And we get with it also all sorts of um, companion passages to those which we just read about in book two. Uh, So the infernal council um, in, in hell and also the encounter between Satan, sin and death. So the infernal Trinity as it were uh, we find that uh, echoed here in, in book three. So there are various literary parallels and echoes here, which I think, you know, you just simply can't leave out. Um, and so, and, and then it deals with matters of great import to the entire epic, uh, which I, I think I'll expand on um, in comments when I get to the passages concerned, but matters such as, as conscience, um, what the... Uh, the real nature of paradise is the nature of hell. Um, those things are, are dealt with only when we dig into book three. So it is, a, it is a key book.
0: Yeah, it has so many elements, actually, which are meant to, again, substantiate that reading dynamic of repetition and variation. We've got a, another council, a supernatural council. We have uh, points within the council and within the location here. Now we're in heaven rather than in hell. And we've got elements to that which are also designed for direct comparison one to the other, so the reader is uh, bereft of that. We have, as you say, major plot developments and the uh, causality behind those plot developments unpacked for us here in book three. A reader is genuinely crippled in his or her ability to appreciate and enjoy Paradise Lost if they skip book three. And there are times when, as you say, you know, in an anthology, uh, the editors simply don't include that, which perhaps speaks to um, the editors, either what the editor is thinking or uh, the elements of Paradise Lost of which the editor is ignorant. But- or I'm
1: interested. They might just say, oh, that's the Christian stuff and that's not the stuff I'm interested in, so we'll leave that out. But if your argument and my argument is correct here, which obviously we both think it is. What Milton has done in books one, two, and three is he has posited the heavenly um, council, which we find at the outset of every epic before this, at least the pagan epics the, um, of the Greeks and the Romans and set them in, in different places. And so can you imagine the dialogue between Athena and Poseidon in let's say the Odyssey in which we only listen to what Poseidon said and not Athena, because that's effectively what we're doing then if we exclude uh, book three.
0: Yes, absolutely. Uh, Essentially it's, uh, it's censoring God and his position on all the developing affairs that we encounter in Paradise Lost. And yes, it is not as grimly dramatic as the uh, the scene that was set in hell and the council that occurs in hell and a lot of people have their imaginations fired by what they encounter there, but nevertheless, um, it, it's it's still a, a scene. Also, and I this is a charge that rather annoys me. A lot of people say Book Three is rather intellectual and boring. Well, if you're actually Um, a somewhat intellectually inclined individual, you'll find that a little bit insulting. Intellectual matters can be, not necessarily, but certainly can be absolutely thrilling. And I do like to get into the ideas that are in book three. But as you and I have uh, previously discussed, oftentimes I simply don't have time and scope to give it full treatment. So usually I'll talk about the ideas in abstract at the beginning of my discussions in class about Paradise Lost. Uh, but I won't dive directly into book three, but it is a great loss, uh, mm-hmm. my decision to do so, and I, I'm fully and painfully aware of that.
1: Re- repent. <laughs> <laughs>
0: shant, shant.
1: <laughs> anyway,
0: shall I read a bit of this? Read a bit of this, please. So
1: what? what just a pref- prefatory comment. Uh, book three begins with an invocation. It's another invocation, so this is not uh, common. Uh, we, do, we do find it, I, I think Dante may do it in the... Uh, Divine Comedy I think he there's an invocation in Canto 2 of the Inferno and once again in the Purgatorio there um, so there are multiple in, uh, invocations but Milton does it four times he does it here or really in book one at the outset he does it here in book three for reasons which will become clear in a minute he was in hell and now he's coming into the presence of God so for that for that reason um, he does it in book seven when he's going to talk about the constellations and about astronomy and he, he invokes Urania the muse uh, of astronomy and then he does it in book nine because now he's going to talk about the fall of mankind and he's going to renew his um, um, sense of the heroic importance of what he's about to say to the reader so those four invocations uh, there and so they punctuate the book in that way uh, but let me begin then um, so we left utter darkness, remember light being the connotation of God, mm-hmm. uh, and darkness, the absence thereof, with these words. Hail, holy light, offspring of heaven's firstborn, or of the eternal, co-eternal beam, may I express the unblamed? Since God is light, and never but an unapproached light dwelt from eternity, dwelt then in thee bright affluence of bright essence in create? Or hear'st thou rather pure ethereal stream, whose fountain who shall tell? Before the sun, before the heavens thou wert, and at the voice of God as with a mantle didst invest the rising world of waters dark and deep, one from the void and formless infinite. Thee I revisit now with bolder wing, escaped the Stygian pool, though long detained in that obscure sojourn. And I'll leave it off there and skip a few lines down to line um, 32 here. He says, "Um, nightly I visit, nor sometimes forget those other two, equaled with me in fate, so were I equaled with them in renown, blind Themirus and blind Maonides. And Tiresias and Phineas, prophets old. I'll stop there and I'll step, I'll move down to the final extract that I want to uh, deal with uh, 40. Thus, with the year seasons return, but not to me returns day, or the sweet approach of even or morn, or sight of vernal bloom or summer's rose, or flocks or herds, or human face divine but cloud instead and ever during dark surrounds me from the cheerful ways of men cut off. And for the book of knowledge fair presented with a universal blank of nature's works to me expunged and raised and wisdom at one entrance quite shut out. So much the rather thou celestial light shine inward and the mind through all her powers irradiate there, plant eyes, all mist from thence purge and disperse, that I may see and tell of things invisible to mortal sight. So three extracts taken all from the invocation. Uh, I apologize for not reading the entirety, but it's 55 lines in the podcast. is going to go on very long. So we're going to read lengthy extracts today because it's hard, hard to cut. But he begins with an invocation of light and speaks of light uh, obviously in multiple forms, the physical light with which he ends that invocation, the thing that he no longer can see, because remember Milton is blind, um, and he is, he's emerging from, from hell in a place of utter darkness, Uh, physical darkness and also spiritual darkness to a place now of light but it's not just light of the light of the sun although there there is an analogy to be drawn there but it's not a precise analogy it's it's it is an analogy the physical light is in some sense uh, the way we experience and understand references to light but there's more than that which is meant here because God is light and never but in unapproached light dwelt from eternity uh, okay, from eternity, but eternity is outside time and space, and light is a spatial temporal thing. It's a manifestation, it's the means by which we see, etc., etc. et, cetera, et cetera. Um, So he makes the, all sorts of theological references here to God as light. He, he does get these directly from scripture. Uh, the holy light here is identified with the Son of God, um, um, pulling from both the uh, Genesis 1 and and, uh, and John chapter 1 here and says that he has come out of the dark void of hell um, and that's one of the reasons that he uh, needs another invocation here because he has been thinking and relating to uh, beings utterly opposed to God and probably because he's a sinner um, is in need of, to present things that he's about to present to the reader, greater inspiration than he could ever have to describe things that are uh, beyond mortal to, to, not only immortal, but a sinner to describe, namely a holy God. So he, he starts with that, uh, then he moves to those two, or four figures rather, um, what a line th- 33, those other two. Uh, those other two equaled with me in fate, so were I equaled with them in renown blind Themirus and blind Maonides. uh, Thimeris, uh is, is mentioned in the Iliad, uh, book two, uh, a, a poet prophet. Uh, and um, Maonides, on the other hand, is, is Homer. Um, and Tiresias and, and Phineas. Uh, was blinded, Phineas was blinded by the sun, um, and, uh, and Phineas, prophets old. Okay, so he makes references to poets, epic poets at that, and prophets, and both of them he's courting comparison with himself. Now re- recall Dante was invited in uh, the uh, in limbo into the company of the epic poets. They greeted him as one they knew about him already, etc. So they and he was happy to be, and he was led through the Inferno and up most of the way to the Purgatorio by uh, Virgil, of course. But he's also claiming a prophetic element to his uh, sense of calling here. And that's interesting as well, and obviously is related to his Christian vocation here. Um, and then he concludes with, the uh, again, the reference to his physical blindness. And he is... Part of the wisdom of the world he's cut off from because he cannot see. But the recompense for that, which he prays for, is that the light, the spiritual light of God, would irradiate and shine inward. And the mind through all her powers, uh, their iradia, and their plant eyes, all mist from thence Persian dispersed, that I may see and tell of things invisible to mortal sight. So he's going to talk about things that cannot be seen. And yet this is the true source of light. The, uh, and so that's how he, that's why he needs this particular uh, invocation. He is now going to talk about purely spiritual matters and not those that can be understood and seen with the phys- physical eye all those things. I'll leave it. Do you have any comments there, Bill?
0: I've got a lot of comments. I'm sure uh, you do. Yeah. Um, let's start, well, I'm going to start in the middle, inconveniently, and talking a little bit about prophecies and prophets and things of that nature. Uh, again, in previous podcasts, we mentioned that uh, one of the favorite words for a poet, um, amongst certainly amongst the Romans, but also in a a lesser degree amongst the greeks was vates a vates is a prophet and a prophet is a poet so vates is this term that gets used interchangeably between uh prophets and poets begging our next question what does the activity of prophecy have to do with poetic communication and poetic aesthetics and things of this nature here Uh, the modern mind tends to compartmentalize these sorts of things where Mm -hmm. you have artistic whatever the job of poetry is Um, it's over here, and whatever the job of prophecy is, it's over here, but never the twain shall meet. And I think a lot of ancient and indeed later poets saw that there was actually an extremely fertile intermixture of these two activities, if you brought them into close proximity with one another as concepts uh, and uh, as undertakings. So what then is a prophecy? And there, of course, we're going to get into the realm of theology, and there are a million one contentious responses to just what that is for my own part i have traditionally thought of prophecy when it's in terms of, uh, in terms of poetry as the articulating of some great and to use a dangerous word sublime transcendent and eternal truth that's what it is it's an uttering of such things um, and can that happen in a biblical context yes of course it can can it happen in a poetic or artistic context yes of course it can um, is there more to what is happening there? Yes, I think in fact, probably somebody should, should sit down and write a long, thoughtful, well-researched piece of speculation onto exactly how that functions and what his history is. I think that would be absolutely brilliant. And maybe there is such a thing written out there and I just haven't encountered it yet. Um, so I'll let you respond back to that in just a bit, but we also have this a little bit at the end. That I just wanna set up my thinking on that, which is this notion Uh, To me, there's a degree of actually quite genuine pathos, uh, as Milton sort of contemplates his own situation, because uh, there's a great tradition also, as you've already signaled here, in prophecy of prophets to be physically blind. The material world is cut off from them. And of course, uh, sight is overwhelmingly uh, our dominant sense by which we engage interface, to use a a modern bit of jargon, Mm -hmm. with the world around us, and more importantly, with the people around us. And Milton has this taken from him, but this puts him in a long tradition of prophets who articulate these great transcendent and eternal truths also having the material world cut off from them. And then you have this sort of compensatory notion that he invokes that if his external material vision is taken from him, let it sharpen then at God's behest, not his own, not the body certainly. Um, let it sharpen, as it were, his inner eye. Let it grant to him that kind of uh, internalization of these undertakings. Which to me is, is fascinating. I hear a lot of cheap, loose talk about how as time goes by and as modernity carries on, whatever modernity means nowadays, that there is uh, a tendency of the human psyche in general, in, at least in Western civilization, to become more and more introspective and internal. And I think, that, I think that actually in reality, if we did a proper, well um, guided study of these sorts of things, we would find that the tendency between internalization and externalization between um, abstract notions and uh, grounding ourselves in the material world operates over time, especially within Western art, much more like a sine wave. And it has periods of greatness and, and, and retraction. But here I think we have a cle- uh, Milton is being forced by physical circumstances to begin to look internally and to make this an internal thing. And we're going to talk to you, I think you've got a fair bit of stuff to say in just a bit on internalization and the dynamics of conscience and free mm. conscience and, and, and how these things uh, attach to virtue and righteousness and things of this nature. So that's just some of my preliminary thinking on what you've read, but doubtless you have your own positions on these as well. Can you say a little bit more about that, Scott?
1: Well, I'm wondering, I mean, this is a conversation, so these go, there's there's a little fluidity about them. I'm wondering, I I do particularly have something to say about the importance of inward, inner versus outer. Um, But Milton announces it right here as his particular situation that because he cannot see, um, he's cut off from something that most people um, who... Most people can see. Certainly in scripture, however, uh, those who are sinners are called to be blind, are spoken of as blind. And the, even the uh, leaders of uh, the the Jews um, who go, end up crucifying Jesus are referred to as blind guides and so forth. Um, blind guides, hypocrites, etc. cetera. Um, even though they can physically see. So the physical sight is they have that capacity but they're they, they lack spiritual sight so they there that that analogy um is is not milton's creation it's something that's already there in scripture which he's laying hold of and and bringing out the conflation the vates reference there to the the poet and the prophet uh yes it's there in rome uh percibus shelley mentions it in the defense of po- poetry as well and and he's no Christian writer, he, he just simply acknowledges that there's an element here which get, is beyond aesthetics, per se, that adheres to the poet's craft. Um, it needn't, but it can, and, and the best of it often does, and Milton certainly um, represents that poet-prophet tradition at its, at its best, I think, for which reason uh, I regard it as the great work of literature. Uh, in any language, not that I've read them all, but still, to my to my knowledge. Um, and then finally, the book of knowledge, fair, and that yeah, the inner and in, the inner and the outer. Well, I'll just say yeah, I'll say something here, and then we'll get we'll dig down into the implications of it thereafter. The title of the book is Paradise Lost, right? And it's going to give us an account of how Paradise was lost. He said at the outset, of man's first disobedience and the fruit of that forbidden tree which brought death into our world and all our woe with loss of Eden till one greater man restore us and regain the blissful seat saying heavenly muse those are the first six lines right it's how paradise will be lost and also regained right there so he's already given away the plot Uh, that's because the plot's already known to his audience he's not telling them something new so the the prophetic aspect of Milton here is not telling us about something which is going to happen that he is telling us that hasn't been told elsewhere. It's that he clothes it in the garb of the epic and he expands on the significance of that for his audience. And what is that? Well, he has already talked about this to some degree. So Satan in book one uh, claims that the mind is its own place and in and of itself can make a hell of heaven, a heaven of hell. I might've flipped that around. But he says it doesn't matter where I am as long as I am what I should be. Um, and, and that's unbowed and unbroken and, uh, and defiant. And, and, and he will not uh, get knee worship from me. I will not bend the knee. I will not. Uh, so and, it, and then concludes with the boast, it's better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. So he claims there the mind is its own place. OK, so I am in the midst of hell, the deepest, darkest pit of hell. And I am still not here because I'm thinking I'm somewhere else. And as long as I don't submit, then I can make my own reality within my own head, more or less. In book four, however, which we're not going to get into in this podcast, that's for a, a series that we just don't have time in our overview of these great books to get into, we find that it, with the prospect of Eden, because he gets out of here, he goes to Eden, and he sees Eve in paradise, and we're told that when he looks upon her, he is stupefied, first of all, by her beauty, and he's dis- disarmed of his enmity, because she is the fairest image of her, her Maker fair. but also that he finds that he has a hell within him, and, and that he cannot step, one foot from hell because he, wherever hell goes, wherever he goes, hell goes because it lodged, it's lodged within him. So his vain boast in, uh, in hell has been demonstrated here in book four. So Milton is drawing this, um, this, and this parallelism, this repetition, but a variation as well between a physical hell, a, a place distinct from God, and also an inner hell. Well, here he talks about an inner person within the mind and so forth. He's going to do the same thing at the end of book 12. He's gonna talk about when Adam and Eve are expelled from paradise and they have repented and they place their faith in the redeemer, we're coming to that in a minute, Uh, that if they do these things and that, uh, so they have faith and then they add uh, faith, hope, and charity, the greatest of all the rest, then they will have within them a paradise within, paradise within, happier far. So they're thrown out of paradise, which is within the Garden of Eden, the place that's closest to God, but even leaving that paradise, they will have the consolation of an inner paradise of sorts. So again, these echoes uh, and themes persist throughout the entire epic, and he's going to expand on that with that how that is important in relation to conscience but let's wait for that
0: yeah there's this notion here that's very prevalent and again a lot of readers don't seem to pick up on this which is that there's a psychological place that you carry around with you so a location is within you and it is not just a place uh mentally and imaginatively and artistically it is also a place which is utterly dominated by notions of justice and righteousness uh, there's a reason that the place within Satan that he carries about with him on his back, as it were, uh, is hell. Um, and he can call it anything he likes. He can try to avail himself of the dynamics of relativism and wishful thinking to call it something else. But the bottom line is reality doesn't care. And it's not just the external reality doesn't care, the inner reality, more importantly doesn't care. Likewise, the paradise, which is to be regained is a place, which is an inner place, which Adam and Eve uh, will access. And again, this is bound up with notions of justice, uh, notions of um, judgment, truth, uh, the dynamics of grace and sacrifice, all of this is bound up in an inner place. And I think one of the things that makes this aspect of paradise lost difficult for some modern readers is that we forget that many previous generations, not only were uh, uh, better educated in terms of culture and history and theology and all these sorts of things. Uh, but they were also more inclined to read things figuratively, whether that be a book or indeed even reality. Their, their minds oftentimes would reach almost unconsciously for abstract analogies and they would take abstract analogies and then compare them to um, actual visceral realities around them and stuff like this. So there was a tremendous complexity and flexibility and inclination to read these things uh, uh, figuratively. And so this notion here of an inner place, which is of course a figurative construct, would not have been particularly alien to a lot of these individuals. But nowadays we tend almost militantly not to apprehend things with any sort of figurative sense, abstract sense we demand a literal reading of almost everything that we encounter and so many of us are not inclined and certainly not trained uh to engage with this this notion that you're talking about here um as well as perhaps we should so i think that's one thing that comes across from that
1: that's a great comment and um one of the things i observed to my students is what, what is the mind that he speaks of here what exactly is that um and it, it's not Or the soul for that matter but what's the mind it's it's an immaterial thing it's not a brain modern psychology i mean there was there was once a debate there's now it seems to me a pretty crushing uh weight of opinion amongst those that are the doctors in this discipline that the brain is the mind um and and therefore disturbances of the mind can be dealt with
0: by dealing with the brain
1: by dealing with the brain brain chemistry and so forth um, that suggests all sorts of things, which I, I think are nonsensical and deeply problematic. Because if that's the case, then reasoning is not possible, because reasoning is not a physical, chemical thing. In which case, what we call reasoning, or or even thinking or imagining, isn't It's, it's epiphenomenological. It's just the appearance to us yes. that we're thinking. We just so a delusion that we're thinking, but we're not really thinking, in which case we're just, I don't know what we're doing, we're we're feeling, uh, anyway. And of course then the consequence of this is people that think that matters that we're talking about here are irrelevant then or or delusional or simply irrelevant, I guess was the word I used. Um, And so we should leave that off or let's cut that off now, but from these things, the consequence of this idea that there's something such as the mind, and that the things that the mind fixes on and regards as most important and you said that justice truth beauty goodness all those sorts of things which have been there and emphasized from not the time of christianity but from the time of the ancient world are now rendered irrelevant that is the consequence of this reductionism and it's a, and it is a reductionism and it is a scientism and it's a total abrogation of of every intellectual discipline including that of psychology i would say
0: oh uh, yeah i had a very interesting conversation with uh, an individual um who used to be head of surgery here in ontario and we were discussing precisely this tendency the tendency towards scientific materialism which we're encountering this is a, a massively growing i would call it an epidemic um <laughs> and the motivation that draws people, that attracts people to um, scientific materialism, oftentimes it seems, and I'm just speculating now, to be derived to some extent from a just simple old fashioned laziness. They don't want to think about the complexities of, of the human experience. Uh, and uh, and also uh, in many cases here, uh, uh, an inability. A lot of people don't have, uh, they're not equipped to take their thinking further than mere scientific uh, materialism on many matters. It it also excuses you from a lot of the weight of being a moral and ethical of your society and your culture. Uh, It's all just down to gears and levers and the the mechanics of the body, the mechanics of the the brain, as you say. Uh, And everything is reduced down to this sort of flat level. Well. Maybe that's true, maybe it's not true. One of the uh, results of this, however, is an incredibly shallow apprehension of the world and quite frankly, uh, an evacuation of value from art specifically here, uh, literature in particular. But of course, that's where many other later thinkers, that's precisely where they went uh, when it came to the, the purpose of art. What is art's purpose? And you and I have spoken about this previously, so we'll leave that for the time
1: being. I think we can go on about this all day because the this just keeps spiraling out and the implications and this is a this is an almost endless conversation but we're not going to get through this if we if we do that we're already well into the podcast let's uh, let's move on to the next uh, extract I'd like us to look at though which is having invoked the light he then moves to those that inhabit this region of light and that is the father and the son Uh, this is where the dialogue begins and here it's not um, a discussion between multiple parties as it was in in hell it's it's two parties the father and the son Mm -hmm. and we see uh, god now portrayed and one of the best objections i've ever Read on this subject, to this is that Milton is daring to portray God and give him language, furthermore, which is the, maybe the reason why he needed to pray for what is about to come because he is actually doing something which is rather um, extraordinary uh, to put it and potentially impious. Dante did not do such a thing, his God does not speak, he sees um, something that he can't see, and it's, of course clothed in light but he can't hear yeah. it but here he, here he does. Milton does.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and so however he with that in mind, however he presents this, he's going to fall short of the reality of, of and the majesty of God. Having said that I think he does as best a job as anyone could um, anyway. But what we find then so we have the Father, God the Father looking and he's seeing, satan rising from hell and is transported towards the earth in order to do something and he sees them from his prospect high we read wherein past present future he beholds and thus to his only son foreseeing spake and i'll um do you want to comment on that first of all the prospect there and that's interesting and it is why he one of the reasons why he's separated from Satan and hell because this is a place from when from wherein past, present, future he beholds. It's not a place. He's not on Mount Olympus.
0: No. Um he is outside of space and time. And we have to remember that he creates space and time and thus he is himself both within it and outside of it. And this has major implications in terms of how the plot is going to develop because this opens up the scope also for God's omniscience. Uh, He knows the future because he is beyond it. He's at the end of time and he's also at the beginning of time and he knows everything that has gone on in between. So this is also going to set up that classic discussion about does God's foreknowledge actually predestine certain events to happen um, or is it just knowledge per se? And C.S. Lewis's take on this was very interesting. I may have mentioned it before. Um, simply knowing, as you and I do, that the sun will rise tomorrow. Actually, that's a bit of a dicey claim up here in Toronto in January. But still, um, just n- you and I know that to be the case, but that does, it does not necessarily follow that our foreknowledge predestines that sun to rise. We simply know that it will as an inevitability. So also, Lewis said, uh, can we talk about God's omniscience from a similar perspective? Yes, God does make certain events happen in history. This is indisputable. Everything is not all flux. Uh, There is a plan. There is a structure. There is a logos to what is going on here. Uh, But there are other aspects, uh, spheres, if you will, where uh, an event horizon opens for uh, free will to play a role in the virtue of the events that transpire. And so what we end up with here is a uh, again, a much more flexible, a much more elaborate and I would argue much more mature vision of time and causality um, and these sorts of things. In fact, I would go one step further and be clear with my students to underscore the fact that actually things happen here in this, you know, in this uh, history, not because of causes, but because of reasons. And again, as we make a distinction between brain and mind, we need to make a distinction between reason and causes reasons, uh, uh, assume uh, individual agency, uh, individual initiative, uh, uh, the guidance of a by a series of principles and values that that individual holds and chooses to do some things for reasons, uh, and not to do other things. Whereas again, back, if we roll this back to a scientific materialism, we're left in a world of mere causes. That's all we've got. Um, And again, we flatten that world's profile and all that can happen within it this so is a,
1: this is a splendid observation and it, it it's a necessary one because it really does hit at the heart of uh the problem of scientific materialism and how it invades our contemporary understanding of almost everything and discussion of it because people assume certain things by certain terms when in fact it is excluding the very possibility of something that is necessary to really understand it and this hence, is why, hence this, our problem
0: yeah this is why I, I i was dismayed by um the book the selfish gene because it only talks in terms of causes um there's no ultimate purpose in end. Uh, i thought this is this is first of all this is quite a crude book using extremely elaborate um machinery to get its simple job done uh, but it was also a little bit depressing because people were so impressed by the book when it first came out and i thought to myself even the ancients made distinctions between causes and reasons um why is it not being made by the best and brightest nowadays but that's now i'm now i'm completely off on a tangent so I'll you're stop. off on a
1: tangent and I, I i i might i'm so tempted to follow
0: you but i'll, I'll resist <laughs> the temptation no um, this is a windy path
1: yeah no um i i not agree with you more on that, but uh, let's not go there. Let me read from the passage, and it deals with exactly the the subject matter that you just uh, picked up there, but um, because readers don't read this, let me read, and I will read a fair uh, chunk here, and uh, you'll see how Milton frames it. So this is God the Father from his prospect high, where in past, present, future, he beholds thus to his only son, foreseeing spake, only begotten son, seest thou what rage transports our adversary, whom no bounds prescribed, no bars of hell, nor all the chains heaped on him there, nor yet the the main abyss wide interrupt can hold. So bent he seems on desperate revenge, that shall redound upon his own rebellious head. And now Through all restraint broke loose, he wings his way, not far off heaven in the precincts of light, directly towards the new created world and man there placed, with purpose to assay if him by force he can destroy, or worse, by some false guile pervert. And shall pervert, for man will hearken to his glozing lies and easily transgress the sole command, sole pledge of his obedience so will fall he and his faithless progeny whose fault Whose but his own ingrate he had of me all he could have i made him just and right sufficient to have stood though free to fall such i created all the ethereal powers and spirits both them who stood and them who failed freely they stood who stood and fell who fell not free what proof could they have given sincere of true allegiance constant faith or love where only what they needs must do appeared not what they would what praise could they receive what pleasure i from such obedience paid when will and reason reason also is choice useless and vain of freedom both despoiled made passive both had served necessity not me. They therefore as to right belonged so were created nor can justly accuse their maker or their making or their fate as if predestination overruled their will disposed by absolute decree or high foreknowledge. They themselves decreed their own revolt not I if I foreknew foreknowledge had no influence on their fault which had no less proved certain unforeknown. So, without least impulse or shadow of fate, or aught by me immutably foreseen, they trespass, authors to themselves in all, both what they judge and what they choose. For so I formed them free, and free they must remain till they enthrall themselves. I else must change their nature and revoke the high decree unchangeable, eternal, which ordained their freedom. They themselves ordained their fall. The first sort by their own suggestion fell, self-tempted, self-depraved. Man falls deceived by the other first. Man, therefore, shall find grace. The other, none. In mercy and justice, both. Through heaven and earth, so shall my glory excel. But mercy, first and last, Shall brightest shine. So that's a lengthy extract. It uh, went on for well over a hundred lines there, um, and it picks up magnificent themes, uh, themes that you've already uh, alluded to there. Um, but the language of it is is so rich, uh, and and so dense, and so. Um, it's its literary language, the illusions, the analogies being made, the analogies between God and His creature, the analogies between uh, God's freedom and human freedom, the analogies made between the Creator and the image bearer, the analogies between the the spiritual beings called angels and those called mankind, the one being uh, falling without a tempter, the one with a tempter, etc. All of these being drawn through here, but the, uh, and God is being, is justifying his ways in some ways here. It's not that he's in the dock as Lewis puts it, as he, as if he were on trial, it's rather, he is expostulating on um, his greatness and his goodness and his blamelessness. It's, it's, it's not it's not a in question
0: yes but he he is
1: answering a series of of uh, unasked questions that so he's answering those and in that sense it sounds a little defensive i guess and a little bit like a theologian might and this is again one of the criticisms
0: i think it the, the sense that i get from this is that this is a magisterial rejection of a number of potential uh, accusations. Uh, You're correct, Uh, these are not direct questions that he is responding to. This is God speculating on the sort of things people might say of him and his role uh, in the production of evil in the universe, which is real evil to be sure. Um, It's also, uh, as you say, uh, it it lays out, and this is typically Miltonic in my view, uh, the argument as it were. Milton likes his arguments. Most people in his day who are uh, intellectually and artistically capable like a good strong vigorous debate. And so this is to some extent Milton begin beginning to hedge in in those directions here. He's got reasons for why he says what he says and of course in this passage you just read you have Milton's famous uh, free will defense. Uh, Unless mankind and indeed the angels had free will to either be obedient or disobedient to God's command, whatever that command may be, and then the goodness that is produced by that act without free will behind it will be negated. So they they have free will, but this also means that they have responsibility. You can't have both of them. And this has been a, a traditional approach that a lot of people will grumble about a lot of people will grumble about the fact that we do or do not have free will or if we do have free will no sorry if we that we ought to have free will and it dignifies the human condition if we have free will but then of course a lot of people don't want to take the responsibility of having free free will so which one is it you you can't have one without the other it's a package deal so god is laying that out here as well scott there's so much to say here um i don't want to go
1: back to what you said though we have free will they want to assert that so they can do whatever they want. On the other hand, because we're all the product of our brain chemistry or selfish genes, we have no responsibility for it and there's no consequences for it either. So it, it's a, the accusation that their position is anything other than not just contradictory, but utterly bankrupt of any integrity. I, I don't see how it's defensible. I simply don't.
0: No, it's mutually um, contradictory.
1: It, it really is. Now, When it comes to this issue of freedom, Milton has a very different understanding of it than our modern day freedom. Freedom is not autonomy. No. Autonomy is an enlightenment postulate. And it is a postulate because it is a theoretical stance. And uh, we'll get into that more when we move into that period, and particularly into later uh, elements of the period in in Immanuel Kant and so forth, in late enlightenment thought. but autonomy is the, uh, the idea of the law of the self. That's more or less what Satan is proclaiming in hell, right? The, yes. the nomos, the autonomos is the self-law. That Literally, that's what it means. That is what Satan proclaims for himself. That becomes the ideal of freedom that is presented as our notion of freedom. Um, and some say that it's from the Enlightenment that our whole notions of freedom... Of, uh, of speech and assembly and conscience, etc. they derive from this period. I think that is poppycock and nonsense. Mm-hmm. Um, it it may arise in and around this period, but it has nothing to do with the, the notion of autonomy or freedom of the Enlightenment. It has nothing to do with that. And the test case of this is in relation to the matter of conscience, and we'll come to that in a minute. Um, but, uh, but here he talks about the importance of freedom. Why, why free? Why did he create them free? Well, because otherwise, what proof could they have given sincere of true allegiance, constant faith, or love? Remember, God is love. And love is the center of Milton's theological universe as well. Everything acts in accordance with uh, the purpose of love. I mentioned in book 12 the, that charity or love 1 corinthians 13 is cited as the greatest of all of the virtues that he would have that's milton's understanding he's taking it out of scripture but also augustinian theology and that of aquinas for that matter and on through the the uh, reformation in the puritan age the great uh, importance of love right. moving everything well you can't love unless you choose your object you can't right. worship it if you have no choice other than to do that. And so he, he creates them free because they have no proof that they've given sincere uh, or true allegiance, constant faith or love, where only what they meet needs must do appeared, not what they would do. Right? So this it's the freedom that allows them to do the greatest thing, which all of our poetry celebrates, love. Right? It's this thing that is at the center of so much poetry in every every language and literature and every tradition love is this is of such primal importance well it's, it's even more important than that it's not just in the relations between the sexes and so forth it's it, it moves literally everything it's not possible without freedom but equally with that in order to show that there's freedom there has to be a possibility of not doing that and that is what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is it's that don't you can't do this yeah, that, That's the one thing, the sole pledge, as God says, of his obedience is that thing.
0: It goes to some extent, again, I mean, while we're making distinctions between similar concepts here, maybe we should make yet another one here. God commands love. Um, this is the greatest commandment, love of the it Lord. the greatest, heart, yep. All thy heart, all thy soul, all thy mind. Um, but it's a command. God commands us. He does not compel us. That's a different thing. Um, You cannot be compelled to love. But here, now we get back into more tricky uh, thinking because there are certain schools of thought, even quite early, I'm thinking here of some of the drama specifically of the French neoclassical period where love is presented as something um, which is, uh, when it strikes you, you do not have the powers to resist it. I think of Racine's Spheedra here specifically. Where if somebody falls in love, they fall in love and they have no power to decide whether or not they will pursue that love. They just they love you'll love who you love. We hear that saying nowadays, um, you know, the heart will love who the lo- heart will love. And, and that's just it. No. Now we're back into a world without choices. Um, right, like, like
1: Virgil's Aeneid when Dido shot with an arrow by Cupid from Venus's uh, Venus's direction.
0: Right. Yeah. She does not have a choice in these matters. She is compelled to love. Um, in now in the, the, the more tawdry romantic sense but still it comes to the same thing and we have this kind of thinking uh, that persists with us it's probably been around forever in a day and it's very much again I, I think a dominant way of conceiving of love whether that's love for other human beings or love for God or love for whomever we talk about it as a compulsion and it, at least implicitly when in point of fact that again is is uh, a stance which is going to evacuate loving from any sort of ethical or moral value whatsoever. And at the
1: same time, they'll say it's a matter of human rights, that they can love whoever they want to love, et cetera. Right?
0: Yes, so again, <laughs> you're, you're caught on the horns of your own contradictions, which are, you know, which one is it? Um, unfortunately, uh, a lot of modern thinkers are not particularly concerned by contradictions. So um, you know, it's, it's not enough for you and I to point out the fact that this is a logical contradiction. But that's, again, a different uh, discussion.
1: Reasoning is white privilege, Bill.
0: Ah, uh, uh, I'm glad you told me. You you worked your way through to that, did you? <laughs> <laughs> I do what I'm told. I see. Okay. Um. <laughs> yeah, I think you've you've really unpacked well the thinking here that goes along with uh, these. Sorts but then
1: of- he got he talks about the fact that he has foreknowledge of it, and he, that's yeah. And he says, in which case, it raises the issue of. Uh, as if foreknowledge had an influence on their fault then, or predestination overruled their own actions. And he directly says that is not so because they are free. Because they are free, they're the authors uh, to themselves of what they choose. And therefore, and he says, for so I found them free, as in founded, and free they must remain till they enthrall themselves. Mm. At which point they are no longer free in the sense. Now, what is freedom then? So after they fall, they're enthralled. They're enthralled. Well, have they not got freedom to do things? Yes, they have freedom to do all manner of things, but they're no longer free to worship God aright because he is holy and they are sinners and they are barred by their sin. They are not free to do the one thing for which they were made. They're not free to love the ultimate good, the ultimate uh, Object worthy of love the ultimate person worthy of love they're not free to do them or they're bound by their sin and that is the hinge on which this whole uh, theology turns right there
0: we've uh, said that before yeah. that concepts like freedom are freedom to do things this is the famous heideggerian position when it comes to consciousness consciousness is never just consciousness it's always consciousness of a thing it takes an object likewise here when we're talking about freedom freedom is never just sort of amorphously freedom as a concept hanging around out there that's not a reality freedom is freedom related to the things one is free to do and what these people are not free to do is they're no longer free to come into the presence of goodness himself, of, uh, of uh, beauty himself, of beingness himself, of justice himself, all these sorts of trans- loving
1: love himself.
0: All they're, they're, they're bound to merely satisfy them with distant echoes of all those, con- distant contingent echoes of his nature and that's all we have here in the darkness that is human, fallen human experience and these sorts of things. So that I'm, I'm glad you targeted that specific freedom there because a lot of other uh, thinkers don't go there.
1: Yeah. And they and finally concludes with the fact that man will find grace and I'll leave it off with that but, they, but the angels won't, but he will find grace. And I, I picked that up because at that point, because after that, we're told that ambrosial fragrance filled all heaven uh, and then the son, so it's, it's, this, it's this glorious word grace that comes out there. And the son then responds to this expression from the father and says this, oh, father, gracious was that word which closed thy sovereign sentence that man should find grace. For which both heaven and earth shall high extol thy praises with the innumerable sound of hymns and sacred songs, wherewith thy throne encompass shall resound thee ever blessed. For should man finally be lost, should man, thy creature, late so loved, thy youngest son fall circumvented thus by fraud, though joined with his own folly, that be far from thee. That be from thee far rather. That far be from thee, Father, who art judge of all things made, and judgest only right. Or shall the adversary thus obtain his end and frustrate thine? Shall he fulfill his malice and thy goodness bring to naught? Or proud return, though to his heavier doom, yet with revenge accomplished, and to hell draw after him the whole race of mankind, by him corrupted? Or wilt thou thyself abolish thy creation and unmake For him, what for thy glory thou hast made, so should thy goodness and thy greatness both be questioned and blasphemed without defense. Now, note here, this is a couple really interesting. The whole gist of the son's questions here is related to the father's integrity and his honor. All of these things are related. And he's not, he's talking about grace, but he's talking about these not explicitly initially in terms of man and what he deserves and the greatness of that, but rather the the, the consequences for for God and so forth, because otherwise what Satan is going to do from our perspective is going to do from God's perspective has already done because he's outside of space and time and so forth. Um, All of these things would be implications of this. The the terrible events told in the fall of mankind would certainly suggest that God lacked power Uh, And that Satan, in fact, had won. And that the creation which God created to be good had been perverted. And yet this word grace seems to, we'll have to expand on this, seems to overcome all of those objections there in one sentence. So it's a powerful phrase and interesting reflections. And just we think of grace towards us. Here he talks about how it relates to the father
0: yes um well this is typical of the human condition to think that somehow everything that happens particularly everything that is done by god somehow has its significance in relation to mankind when in point of fact uh, we are the contingent element in the equation and god is the necessary one so we need to keep that in view as well and a lot of i, th- I think a lot of my students um even my christian students are still at some level bothered by the notion of grace. And I have to spend some time unpacking that. I'm not sure we have time to get too far into that today. But yeah, you're right. This is a package deal. And if you consider a lot of these qualities in isolation, um, they cease to make as much sense. And they are bled of a lot of their significance when, in point of fact, it's part of a larger model that fits together and works uh, logically in relation to those other elements, those other qualities, those other characteristics that you and I have been talking about. what more do we want to say about this? But note that he,
1: God is not necessitated to do this. He's a free, he is free. And the offer of grace is freely given. Yeah. Um, right? And, yeah. And, and, and so he's not compelled to do this by, by any token of the imagination.
0: No, this is why I framed m- my comments on free will, human free will, in terms of spheres within the wider uh, ambit of the cosmos and time. Uh, as exactly that, their spheres. None of this is to undermine God's omnipotence. God is indeed omnipotent, and his will is sovereign, and his ends uh, will come to pass, uh, whether or not we like it, no matter what we do, with our free will. But within that, there is still the scope for human free will, and agency, and things of this nature, and therefore also, as we've already said, of, of guilt. We also need to be careful of talking at least around Milton here as if God is compelled to do anything you mentioned the word necessity in relation to God that God is necessarily compelled to do this that or the other thing God is not compelled to do anything I hear this language all the time where people will say things like God can must do this and God cannot do that for instance a favorite one is God cannot lie um If that is indeed the case, then you are saying that he is not omnipotent, or you mean something more limited by omnipotence. Um, You don't mean full omnipotence. I do. You clearly don't. Um, But rather God, in his goodness, as an extension of his nature, chooses not to lie, not to deceive. He remains true to his own nature of truth, being truth himself, and things of that sort. But that stops well short of a compulsion, again. God is free and sovereign. And we we have to be mindful of that here
1: so when god you say god can't lie what mean is god won't lie and yes. he never does
0: that's much more accurate language and there's much turns on everything turns on that little uh adjustment if you like
1: very good um again these are things upon which you can talk on all day but let's let's move on yes to whom the great creator thus replied O son in whom my soul hath chief delight, son of my bosom, son who art alone, my word, my wisdom, and effectual might, all hast thou spoken as my thoughts are, all as my eternal purpose hath decreed. Man shall not quite be lost, but saved who will. Yet not of will in him, but grace in me, freely vouchsafed. Once more I will renew his lapsed powers, though forfeited and enthralled by sin to foul exorbitant desires, upheld by me, yet once more he shall stand on even ground against his mortal foe, by me upheld, that he may know how frail his fallen condition is, and to me owe all his deliverance, and to none but me. And then he gets into a matter of the difference between those that he's chosen and those that he's not chosen. I'll skip over that, not because I don't want to, but just again, space of time, and uh, move on to uh, another key point here. And I will place within them, those that he has chosen, the particular grace, the peculiar grace, those he has chosen as a guide, my umpire conscience, whom if they will hear light after light well used they shall attain and to the end persisting safe arrive let me stop there and let us talk there on this because and then i'll move on to the next bit which is a, it's an unbroken speech but i'm going to break it up here because he uh talks about this umpire conscience now an umpire is an adjudicator like think of baseball i guess there's an umpire who calls the balls and strike in, in that sense conscience will act here now we have freedom of conscience as one of the rights articulated, say, in our Charter of Rights and Freedoms and so forth. I believe conscience is in there. Uh, Religious freedom, but also freedom of conscience. Now, freedom of conscience is different than religious freedom. Religious freedom is is a corporate thing. It's for a body of individuals who gather together to worship God. Conscience, on the other hand, is an inner voice, an inner conviction of the rightness or wrongness of something. And uh, it is upheld in our charter and in many of the Western world's uh, charters as a matter of great importance. Where do we get this from? It's not from the ancient world. It's not from the Enlightenment, furthermore, per se. It, It comes right here out of this because it again comes with this notion of freedom and a free response to grace and an understanding of that. And and it's solely based on that, and it does not have any other um, foundation, I I think. And that will lead uh, in, as it's represented in Paradise Lost, uh, the angel, Abdiel, who's in the midst of it. So in book five and six, he's one of the angels and there's a war in heaven. And Abdiel is one of the angels who initially finds himself in the midst of Satan's cohort, and they're when they're rebelling against God, and even though he's in the midst of all of these rebel, rebelling angels, he stands alone against them, alone. And he will not he will not bow, and he he calls upon them to repent. Um, and so, um, and he was, and this is Milton's phrase here: uh, "Abdil found f- among the faithless, faithful only he, only he, and and that one individual." whose conscience has convicted him, not to go along with the crowd. That is, Milton praises that, and the individual choice there, that is incumbent. Now that is of great value. There's a great deal. I I read nonsense in the papers about uh, Western individualism and we don't value the group and it's all about in the individual and stuff that it's much diminished in our, our culture these days. It's not about the individual. It's not that's not about that as, as if it was the group and the individual. So this is a sociological understanding. This is not a Christian understanding. It's not a correct understanding. With that understanding, of course, the individual means nothing. But that's not what Milton means here. This umpire conscience and the importance of conscience, the, the, the conviction of right and wrong, you could put, put that back to Socrates. It's the knowledge of justice. And it is there, uh, in some sense it can be described in terms of everybody appeals to justice when they feel wronged. That's why they're angry. They, they know that both parties have an intuitive understanding when an injustice is done against them. They don't have an intuitive understanding. In fact, they seem to overlook it when they do it to somebody else. But the, uh, the offended party knows that they have been wronged. Okay, yeah. where does this come from? Is it a brain chemical? No, they're appealing to a transcendent understanding of something called justice. Well, so does Socrates. Okay, but this conscience here is absolutely sacrosanct, and it's in our charters, uh, and and we supposedly stand for that now, except that we no longer do.
0: Well, this is one of the things I lament about Milton not being read and read deeply and thoughtfully by moderns, which is that freedom. uh, Milton is one of the great One of the great champions of various types of freedom, and his his freedoms are, as you've already pointed out here, extremely cogent. You can actually these are not fluffy, vague umbrella terms that could mean almost anything depending on your context and perspective. Uh, He is at pains to map out just what uh, that the nature of these individual freedoms are. One of them, of course, which doesn't get treated um at great length in paradise lost uh is freedom of speech and you and i could talk endlessly about milton's discussion around freedom of speech in an area, area of
1: yeah it
0: is correct um but here we have another another type of freedom this is freedom of conscience and both of these things speech and conscience i believe are under uh enormous pressure right now we are living in a very very benighted age when it comes to freedom of conscience, conscience as well as freedom of speech. And we tend to really, if we're gonna zero in on any of these violations as people clamp down, we tend to focus on freedom of speech and uh, it's ever shrinking uh, scope and ambit, uh, which will um, uh, uh, disappear entirely. But we've also got this freedom of conscience. And I think this is a really relevant point for a lot of just about everybody in their everyday actual lived lives we find ourselves increasingly in the west self-censoring some people tell me that they self-censor their thoughts and opinions um, more or less on a continuous basis as they interact with other individuals and institutions and things of these sorts and if all of a sudden something slips past your self-censorship it can literally spell your destruction um, your social destruction, your uh, vocational destruction, uh, at any number of levels. And so a lot of people, in doing so, are actually violating their own conscience. They're yes. no longer free. to they, they feel that something's wrong, but they, if they, they speak out against it, um, either by commission or omission, then, um, of course, there are dire consequences oftentimes for this. And so this has a knock-on effect. Violating your own conscience and not doing or saying what you think you ought to do or say has a way of eroding your own sense of your own identity. It it fundamentally undermines your integrity. When you look in the mirror, you can see a person who has betrayed themselves. They've betrayed their own conscience, sometimes because of extremely large threats, sometimes because of uh, minor Uh, troubles that would ensue if they hadn't done this, but freedom of conscience is something that is, in my view, something that is uh, dramatically under threat right now, and the consequences, um, especially in terms of self-image and self-respect, are huge. And if you lose your self-respect because you're continuously violating your conscience, you cease to see yourself as a person who is better than this or not as bad as that or anything like this and all of a sudden the scope for your behavior in terms of good and evil widens particularly on the uh, the evil side of things because why wouldn't you do the bad thing because you no longer respect yourself because you've been violating your conscience continually Uh, and down you go and and then the more you do that the more that in turn erodes your self-respect again and so it becomes a cycle as you spiral down the mountainside of virtue um and it all starts with this issue
1: yes um it's usually presented in slightly different terms jesus asked the question what does it profit a man to gain the whole world if he should lose his soul mm-hmm. his soul i take as a reference to his conscience here his rational moral nature, his ability to choose freely, knowing what's right and what's not right. Um, there's a great um, play by Robert Bolk called A Man For All Seasons on which this whole theme is played out. Um, Thomas More played as the defender of his conscience there and uh, suggests that if, if uh, he does not follow his conscience, then England will no longer be England. And I would say that that's the case in our day, but there it's presented as a reward in a sense. You you can, and it's often, and the man who betrays him, Richard Rich, does it for the reward of whales of all things, more as derisory. (laughs) You you gain the whole world, but for whales, yes. (laughs) Um, But it's often in our country and in uh, the world, it seems done for the sake of fear it's not of it's and so fear is the weapon of the enemy where's the courage well the courage comes from the conviction that conscience and is the thing because truth is the thing and god is the thing so it's a it's a matter of conviction uh that leads to courage and the courage is the thing that allows freedom to stand it doesn't stand on its own it's not it's it's not something like atmosphere we can talk about an atmosphere of freedom well again this is a figure of speech mm mm-hmm. Freedom will exist where freedom is valued. Where it is not valued and not defended, it will fall. And it, as you say, it may be falling. But I resist that thought. I, I rebuke the thought, because I will not accept that uh, this will happen. Because there are free uh, people these days still. We've, we shall see. Nonetheless, uh, God willing. Um, but that he left off with that. Uh, let's, let's move on. Um, he, he move to the next section. He says, but yet all is not done, line 203. Man, because there's a whole connection of consequences here. He's, he said grace. He's going to give grace. Okay, well, then that's the end of it. God has said he'll, man will have grace. But there's a problem here. Man has <laughs> sinned. Yep. He's done the thing that he was forbidden from doing. God can't. Just leave this alone because injustice is happening. God to be just has to do something about it. Mm-hmm. And Grace isn't it. There has to be something that pays the punishment or the penalty for that. And so here we go. All is not yet done. Man disobeying, disloyal, breaks his fealty and sins against the high supremacy of heaven, affecting Godhead. And so losing all to expatiate his treason hath not left but to destruction sacred and devote he with his whole posterity must die die he or justice must unless for him some other able and as willing pay the rigid satisfaction death for death say heavenly powers where shall we find such love which of ye will be mortal to redeem man's mortal crime and just the unjust to save, dwells in all heaven, charity so dear? He asked, but all the heavenly choir stood mute, (laughs) and silence was in heaven. On man's behalf, patron or intercessor, none appeared, much less that durst upon his own head draw the deadly forfeiture and ransom set. And now without redemption, all mankind must have been lost, adjudged to death and hell by doom severe had not the son of God in whom the fullness dwells of love, divine, his dearest mediation, thus renewed. I'll stop off there. The problem of justice, God is just, and he must in accordance with his nature, be just. He doesn't have to be just, but he will be, but he will be just because he chooses to be just. So again, it's not that God is compelled to be just, you know, it's part of his qualities, his properties. No, he chooses justice because that is uh, what makes him just. He loves justice. And he and he needs to insist on that here. So now the problem, the, you can't just, grace does not get rid of the problem of sin per se, the word grace. It's yeah. not erasing. And, and people have even said this in response to the atonement, um, is that why didn't God just forgive it all and leave it all, like get rid of it say, oops, that was a mulligan or something or well forget about all that
0: because then a good god is not good because goodness implies justice
1: yep and and a world without justice would be a world in which there was no judgment for the terrible iniquities we see all around us people cry out against injustice what do they really want do they want a world that in which there's no justice in which there's no judge
0: yeah it's fine if you're the uh, victimizer it's not so great if you're the victim Indeed. um the, the the powerful and entitled yeah uh, they would happily dispense oftentimes with justice uh, but uh, people down here in the trenches no that is not a good scenario that is a that's an awful world in which to live that's a, a another form of hell if you like
1: it isn't that's a good good phrase for it exactly it and and go back to what i said i don't know it was last time the time before for the pantheist good and evil are Two sides of the same coin. They're 50 shades of gray. They're just from a perspective. When we say cancer kills a patient, um, and we kill cancer, it's just killing. So what's the difference? Mm -hmm. No difference. But these are just this is just language, it's verbiage. It's just a matter of perspective. Well, Mm -hmm. that's as Lewis says, that's damn nonsense. This is not, and got and 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 certainly Milton's not portraying it that way. So Here's the problem and i left off and i read that passage about the response to god's so here's what we can do there has to be an intercessor somebody has to take on the consequences of man's sin and it has to be somebody who is sinless
0: yes uh, and also i'd like to know just very briefly a technical point here notice the awkward silence in heaven only milton would give us an awkward silence uh, <laughs> but but it is mirrored by that awkward silence in hell when the great proposal was put forward Um, Who will do this thing? And so in in both cases, an individual steps forward. But again, compare and contrast motives, nature, objectives, uh, all these sorts of things. These two individuals are meant to be compared. So is Satan somehow the the yang of uh jesus's yin or something like that no he's infinitely beneath him as he is infinitely beneath god because jesus is god and god is jesus um nevertheless in a literary sense yes they are being compared here not as equivalents but as counterpoints to each other and them. but we're, we sh- we don't have time to get into analyzing that in detail. I think that's
1: why I read it. I'm glad you picked it up. Fantastic. And yes, Milton is clearly meaning us to see that there. Uh, um, So the, the son speaks in response to this after this awkward silence. Father, thy word is past. Man shall find grace. And shall grace not find means that finds her way, the speediest of thy winged messengers to visit all thy creatures, and to all comes unprevented, unimplored, unsought, happy for man so coming. He her aid can never seek, once dead in sins and lost, atonement for himself or offering meat, indebted and undone, hath none to bring Behold me then, on uh, me for him, life for life I offer, on me let thine anger fall, account me man, I for his sake will leave thy bosom and this glory next to thee freely put off, and for him lastly die well pleased, on me let death wreck all his rage, under his gloomy power I shall not long lie vanquished. Thou hast given me to possess life in myself forever. By thee I live. For now to death I yield and am his due. All that of me can die. Yet that debt paid, thou wilt not leave me in the loathsome grave his prey, nor suffer my unspotted soul forever with corruption there to dwell. But I shall rise victorious and subdue my vanquisher, spoiled of his wanted spoil. Death his death's wound shall then receive and stoop inglorious of his mortal sting disarmed. I, through the ample air in triumph high, shall lead hell captive, Mauger hell, and show that the powers of darkness bound. Thou at the sight, pleased out of heaven, shall look down and smile, while by thee rays I shall ruin all my foes, death last, and with his carcass glut the grave. Then with the multitude of my redeemed shall enter heaven's long absent and return father to see thy face wherein no cloud of anger shall remain but peace assured and reconcilement wrath shall be no more thenceforth but in thy presence joy entire. Um, The marvelous uh, narrative here Um, and again I I just I can't I I have I lack words to describe how wonderful the way in which Milton condenses uh, and expresses the the language here Uh, you said some find it boring I don't see how in any way this is boring but note the uh, reciprocity here and at the same time the lack of um, equality in the whole thing so the, uh, at the cross, the sinless gives himself for the sinner. What is the sinner? What does the sinful get or the, the sinless get? He gets death. What does the sinful get? He gets life. It's this, this, the great exchange uh, as a consequence of the cross. Um, this is part of what grace means. And it's, it's, it's expanded upon here. Um, and... What is not expanded on is the loss that the son um, receives in becoming man, the humiliation, the humbling of taking on human nature. But he did not think it was equality with God was something to be grasped, but made himself a servant um, and and did this thing. Do um, you have any comments on this passage? I think they speak for themselves, actually.
0: But... Yeah, uh, just a few things here to note. Uh, first of all, that this sacrifice derives from love. Uh, first and foremost, love for God the Father. I think a lot of people miss that. They think it's uh, primarily driven by love for humanity. Uh, and it is driven by a uh, love for humanity, but this is again a contingent versus a necessary love. Um, so we have to remember that aspect of things. We also have to remember here that as man is not free, to come into the presence of all which could possibly be perceived by him as the source of goodness so also in dying the son is going to be cut off from that presence um that's uh, something i think that a lot of people tend to miss here this is this is a, an essential part of the agony of the death of christ it's not just a mere physical death and the torture and everything that was bound up in that it is a separation from goodness himself that comes out of this as a consequence.
1: But so he cries out, my God, my God, why, why hast thou forsaken me, right?
0: Exactly, precisely. That is the quotation I had in my mind. Um, and also notice, uh, again, the, the symmetry of concepts here, which I don't think uh, Milton is uh, constructing. I think he's simply making them visible, as it were, on the page. Exactly. Um, that uh, the love combines with this notion of grace, which combines with this notion of justice in a a, a logical machine, if you will, that makes a lot of sense. It all comes together as a package deal. And again, a lot of people who are reading Milton read his ideas, never mind his words, in bits and pieces, and they never see the larger fitting together of concepts here as large, complex, uh, uh, rational constructs. Um, though Again, as I said, construct is not really the best word to be using here. So in this sense, obviously, God's wrath and his justice is sat, uh, satisfied, is satisfied by an individual who is blameless, as you say, for the sake of one who is blamed. Notice again, here is God's love is not just God's love for those who please him, uh, because obviously mankind has not pleased him. It, this is God's love for those who, have rebelled against him, who have violated God's goodness, which is extraordinary. And some people find it counterintuitive, but it has precedence again in the gospels. Um, And the whole thing is driven by love of the son for the father and the father's love in turn for the son, but also mankind. Uh, And so this is not the son, by the way, earning God's love. This is the son fulfilling his nature, just as God is fulfilling his nature, which is to be perfect goodness anyway i could prattle on forever like this but we've already gone on a fair time
1: we have i noticed that and um there's so much more to deal with in this passage but you know what i think we've given the readers or the listeners uh, more than ample food for thought here and maybe we should leave it off till next time um what should we talk about next time book Are there- nine should we go to book nine
0: book nine would be great and there's lots to talk about here um and uh, i think some listeners if you have more to say about book three i think uh some listeners would really appreciate you opening up certain threads of of thinking to them as well so um since you're the milton guy i'm gonna leave the call to you i I will go (laughs) either option
1: no it's fine okay um you mean in terms of putting questions on the youtube channel or whatever i mean i'm i'm planning on um or we're planning on building a website for Paideia today. Um, and uh, it will offer um, more features, more opportunities, courses, and so forth, um, but that to wait, wait for that more information forthcoming. But uh, is that what you're proposing, Bill?
0: No, no, I was just talking okay. here about uh, book three specifically, though, that's, yeah, that was a good point that you just made there. I think a lot of our listeners are unaware of our longer term plans with uh, or for PyDEA today. So that's useful.
1: So we'll go to book nine we'll see where that leads us next time hope maybe we can even rope in book 12 but we'll see um anyway Excellent. um is that it for now
0: i think that's it for now
1: okay well then i'm scott masson with paidea today my colleague bill friesen thank you very much for being with us and look forward to seeing you again next time Bye. Take <laughs>